From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihe Razazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. After four years of a devastating war in Yemen, this week we delve into the complexities of living with war through the eyes of a group of Yemeni women. We'll hear from them, talking about their activism and what role they took on in their communities and families since the beginning of the war in 2015. But first, we discuss the pro-Israel backlash against Palestine activism on U.S. campuses. The backlash is not new, but in recent years, lawsuits have been increasingly used to intimidate students and faculty and silence any criticism of Israel. So how does this backlash look like in the Trump era, and is it working? Vomina's Mira Nabulsi spoke with Zoha Khalili, an attorney with Palestine Legal, and Dr. Lubna Otami, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement. I wanted to start with you, Zaha. Um, your organization, Palestine Legal, was established to confront the very problem that we're talking today, and that is the suppression and silencing of Palestine activism. Can you explain to our listeners what does the suppression of Palestine activism look like today, how systematic it is? Thank you so much, Mira. So yeah, at Palestine Legal, we defend the civil and constitutional rights of activists in the United States who are speaking about Palestine. And the the suppression of their rights can come from all types of actors. So that can include private individuals who are harassing people. Um, It can include advocacy organizations that are representing the interests of the Israeli government. Um, And it can include university administrators that are interfering with the ability of students to hold events on campus, politicians that are interfering with the ability of individuals to be able to engage in a boycott for Palestinian rights. Um, There's websites that are established to blacklist and harass students, professors and activists. Um, It's, you know, the attacks are coming from all sides. Mm -hmm. But you also focus a lot on college campuses. Why do you think that's the case? So about 80 percent of our incidents that we hear about that we respond to um, are taking place on college campuses because those are, you know, vibrant centers of learning and a lot of people are being educated about what's going on in Palestine, and that provokes the ire of people who are wanting to defend Israel from Mm -hmm. criticism. And uh, Lubna, you're a member of the student union UAW2865. That's the student union that includes uh, teaching assistants, readers, uh, basically graduate students that work on the University of California um, system. Um, So if you've had years of experience with student activism, I wanted you to put things a little bit in context for our listeners, explain the historical maybe background. Obviously, this is not a new thing. So yeah, I think the first thing that is really important is that these kinds of attacks have been really a quintessential experience and characteristic of the Palestinian condition across generations and places. Um, And so this is not new for a lot of Palestinian communities. What is distinct is that as the student movement, particularly in the broader solidarity movement, has expanded, um, especially after the 2009 attack on 
Gaza, and particularly after UC Berkeley's 2010 divestment bill, uh, we see really a rise of SJP chapters, Students for Justice in Palestine chapters across the country opening. Maybe just explain that divestment bill at UC Berkeley. Yes, it's uh, the divestment initiatives have been uh, really geared into motion mostly by student uh, groups, uh, particularly forerun by Students for Justice in Palestine, to um, ask their university to end complicity in um, the Israeli occupation of Palestine, uh, and particularly uh, to you know, divest investments in companies that profited uh, specifically from the attacks on the Gaza Strip um, and that profit from uh, settlements in the West Bank and from, mm-hmm. and from the occupation more broadly. So after 2010, after the, the original uh, first major divestment initiative that happened at UC Berkeley, we started to see dozens of uh, divestment initiatives opened by student groups in different campuses across the country and a real escalation in sort of uh, political mobilization in defense of Palestinian rights and, and for justice in Palestine. And that became met with um, a much more organized uh, form of suppression by Zionist organizations who started very intentionally trying to quell sort of dissent and criminalize free speech on campus. I guess since you started talking about 2010, do you see the suppression changing? Can we talk about a change in the strategy between then and now? Yeah, I think that there's been several different strategies that we've seen. Obviously, silencing um, punitive measures taken by campus administrations, pressured by external forces to put their student groups on sanctions, to suspend or expel certain students for political mobilization on campus, to put them through really long bureaucratic processes of, you know, defending their right to free speech. And I, I'm, Palestine Legal has been doing really great work around that. That's been one major strategy that's still um, continuing today. But the second is also that since 2010, a lot's changed in Palestine uh, solidarity organizing in the U.S. One of the things is that Palestinians and their allies have more intentionally situated Palestine within broader social justice, joint struggle causes and communities. And that's been something that has always been a really important characteristic for the Palestinian struggle historically. And so today, when we say freedom for Palestinians and in Palestine, that's deeply bound to questions of demilitarization borders and of policing and of prison abolition work. And so this broader movement has sort of been suppressed by people who are trying to also stifle the conversation on Palestine because, you know, there's two approaches that take. Sometimes it's that we can be progressive on all, on all issues, but we can't talk about Palestine. Mm-hmm. And then the other the other approach is that Palestine is part of all of these other demands for social transformation, and therefore we must quell Palestine. We must, we must stifle it in order to also stifle um, any achievements that can be made in other social justice causes and communities. And uh, more recently, we're, I think it's become a little bit more noticeable how systematic and how the use of especially lawfare and like suing university professors, suing organizations. So if we can also touch on that angle specifically. Yeah, we have definitely seen an uptick in legal threats and lawsuits that are filed against both universities and against individuals and organizations, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been a number of organizations, um, some of them funded by the Israeli government, um, some of them that may or may not have connections to Israel, but they are, you know, their focus is to create obstacles for people and to distract them from their organizing and their activism. 
Um, so there was a lawsuit that was filed against San Francisco State University and against Professor Rabab Abdulhadi, who was the head of their Arab the mm, Arab and Arab Muslim, Muslim Ethnicities and, and Diaspora Studies. Initiative uh, program there. And so the lawsuit was saying that, you know, she was responsible for the student activism on campus. And because of her activism and her scholarship on Palestine, it was creating an uncomfortable environment for Israeli students, for Jewish students, and for students who were pro-Israel. That lawsuit got dismissed because there was definitely no evidence mm-hmm. that, that any of her activities had, had caused a problematic environment for students, especially for Jewish students, many of whom are highly critical of Israel. And the lawsuit was really designed to equate criticism of Israel with harassment of Jewish students. And the judge saw past that and throughout the, mm-hmm. the lawsuit. And, and they tried suing her multiple times. Right. So after the lawsuit was thrown out the first time in March of 2018, they actually filed it again and it got thrown out again at the end of October, I believe. They were told one time that their complaint really didn't amount to anything legally sufficient. And it was both an organization called Lawfare and also um, a very large law firm called Winston and Strawn. And even though they had so many resources to try to craft a legal argument that could stand up in court, they really weren't able to because the facts are not there. So, you know, pro-Palestine organizing on campus is really centered around justice and it is inclusive and it is something that it's a political debate that is taking place on campuses and it is not something that is targeting any individual students and there is no reason why any individual students should feel at all threatened by it. Mm -hmm. But we have definitely seen this strategy taking place both in courts and also on the part of the U.S. government. So now the Department of Education has an Office of Civil Rights that is headed by a staunch pro-Israel advocate who had spent his career for the decade prior to, to taking office under Donald Trump. His name is Ken Marcus, and he had focused on creating obstacles for students not to be able to talk about Palestine on campus. And he had filed complaints saying that it was violating the civil rights of Jewish students. Those complaints were thrown out. He defended his complaints by saying that even though there wasn't legal merit there, it still scared students because they didn't want to see that on their resumes that they were investigated for a civil rights complaint. So, you know, his focus is on scaring students away from talking about Palestine by having their schools investigated. Mm -hmm. And also that pressures administrators to try to create obstacles for students. And generally, what's been the response by university administrations or presidents? Because it seems like this is external organizations interfering in the freedom of speech of students and faculty on campus, which shouldn't happen. What's generally been the response from university administrations to this? We've seen a really mixed response. So the university is out there to defend its own interests. And so it will talk about free speech um, when it is being attacked as an institution. But at the same time, it will take so many steps to suppress the free speech of individuals on campus. So in one case at San Francisco State, you know, they were um, talking about some social media posts that were they were defending as free speech. And they were saying, you know, the university shouldn't be um, held accountable for these social media posts. It's free speech. It was like talking about politics. It was just criticism of Israel. And that is something that everyone has a right to do at public universities under the First Amendment. You know, as members of this community, we're able to debate this really important foreign policy issue. So they were staunch 
staunch defenders of free speech in that situation in defending themselves against a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, they had put students through hell because of social media postings. They're attacking Professor Rabab Abdulhadi because she posts things on, on Facebook, criticizing what the administration of the university is doing. The university president had put out a statement saying that Zionists are welcome on campus. And so he was really singling out defenders of Israel to say that they were welcome at San Francisco State University. It was not an inclusive statement, and Professor Abdulhadi was very critical of the fact that the university was siding with this racist movement. And so she posted about it, and the university told her to take it down. They issued threats against her. That's her personal Facebook account. Yeah, it was a, talking on about her here. personal Facebook account, and it was shared by a Facebook page that was created to support the the Ahmed Studies program that she heads. But that was also an unofficial account of supporters, but the university attacked her for that, while at the same time in the lawsuit out of the other side of its mouth saying that this is free speech. And so since we're starting now to talk about examples, I thought we'd also highlight one of the most recent examples of uh, Students for Justice in Palestine's annual conference that they had this year in Los Angeles at UCLA, which they faced a lot of backlash too. I think that's a really great case study to talk about the different types of suppression that are taking place on mm -hmm. U.S. campuses. So the National Students for Justice in Palestine conference took place on November 16th through 18th at UCLA. Um, it was hosted by the Students for Justice in Palestine chapter at UCLA, and, it, and every year it's hosted by a different chapter, welcome students from around the country and from Canada um, to come together to put on workshops and to listen to lectures from scholars who are going to be discussing Palestine and other important social justice issues and, and you know, talking about strategies that students can use on campus. So it was a private conference. It was put on by students who were all volunteers. And they faced all kinds of attacks. So first, I think the initial attacks came from um, pro-Israel groups who were saying that UCLA as a public institution should not allow this conference to take place on their campus. So, you know, as a public space, UCLA has no right to regulate the content of an event that is taking place on its campus. And, and you know, it was, it was privately funded. Students were um, not using student fees. They were just putting it on on campus. And just as anyone is able to re reserve space on campus, they reserved space on campus. Even though other student organizations, when they want to have events, they're able to use student organization funding. But because of the attacks that were taking place against, you know, the fact, the existence of this conference, students chose to um, pay for the buildings and pay for everything that they, they were doing instead of relying on university funding to be able to have a private conference mm -hmm. that would allow them protect, to protect the attendees. Because one thing that we've seen with past conferences is that there's a lot of surveillance. Individuals who attend the conferences are taken and posted on these blacklisting websites that call them racist, that have a mission of preventing students from being able to find employment because of their student activism. And so there will be a profile that says, for example, this person attended the National Students for Justice in Palestine conference in 2015. And and that website tries to associate them with racism mm -hmm. um, because of that, because they had attended the conference. And so, you know, people wanted to be able to have a private conference where they could feel comfortable attending and, and talking to people and having name badges that identify themselves to other conference attendees without being profiled on the internet by pro-Israel forces. So there were attacks that were saying that the school should shut it down. That, those attacks were, you know, they've created pressure on the administration that created a lot of roadblocks for students. So, you know, there was issues that they had in being able to get assurances from the university that the, the conference would take place because, you know, people were demanding that the conference get shut down. The university may have had some internal co conversations about that. But, 
students weren't hearing from the university about whether or not they were going to allow the conference to take place. And so those internal discussions that were taking place, that information wasn't being shared with students. Um, so it, it was a really difficult situation when they were trying to, to invite people from around the country and to plan the logistics of this conference to know whether or not it would even be able, allowed to take place. Mm-hmm. The other attacks that they that took place were from politicians. So there was a congressman, Brad Sherman, who represents Los Angeles in the U.S. Congress, um, called for the conference to be shut down. And, you know, this is a politician who has sworn to uphold the Constitution. And the First Amendment of the Constitution says that, you know, individuals have a right to free speech. And so so he he was out there calling for a public institution to shut down an event where people were just trying to have conversations and to educate each other, even though he has the sworn duty to uphold the Constitution. You know, there was also attacks from the Los Angeles City Council, which passed a resolution which similarly claimed to uphold free speech, talked about the importance of free speech, and then called for the conference to get shut down, which is such a blatant contradiction in the same document. And and again, these are people whose duty is to create and enforce our laws. So mm-hmm. there was also a physical attack on students on campus the week prior to the conference. Um, there was a protest by a, a pro-Israel group. They found some students who were visibly either Arab or Muslim and, and surrounded them and started threatening them. Um, Just random students that looked yeah. like they could yeah. be Middle Eastern or yeah. Arab. Or... Yeah. So that took place. And that same group actually was scheduled to to have a protest on campus during the conference. And so, you know, they were allowed to have that protest. There were a ton of police around the conference and also security officials like private security and then also community members that were that showed up to the conference to try to protect conference attendees. Is the private security, that's uh, something the university administration yeah. hired? Yeah, the university administration decided that they needed to have a lot of police around. And, and that could make students feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are such a variety of people involved in in the pro-Palestine movement in the United States that includes a lot of people who might be undocumented, who might not feel comfortable being around police, people who may have experienced police violence because of their identities or their activism. But they were forced to deal with a large police presence in order to be able to attend this conference because of the threats that were made against it. And even though there were was such a huge showing of, of police presence, pro-Israel groups were actually able to sneak their activists into the conference to photograph students and to, to take over the stage with an Israeli flag. Students did file a police report, so we'll see if police do anything about it. It's unclear at this point whether they are going to prosecute people for trespassing. So I'm thinking of this environment that's being created that's clearly aiming to intimidate students. And it's really scary because it seems like it's just a student activism. It's a bunch of 18 and 20 year olds getting together to discuss ideas. And you get all of this uh, policing and militarization of the campus and Congress members getting involved. They're turning this into such a big scary thing. Lubna, is your sense that this is working? Is this intimidation working? What do you think? I think the intimidation is working in the sense that students feel, you know, precarious. They feel frightened, and rightfully so. They've been cyber-stalked. They've been bullied. They've been harassed. They've been followed. I mean, it really creates sort of a surveillance apparatus that goes far beyond just the state surveillance apparatus we're experiencing in a post-9-11 context. So I think that there's rightfully a lot of fear. But I also think that 
you know, it's really politicizing young students in a way that's giving them a really critical political consciousness. And I think part of that is not just because of the intimidation tactics. It has to do with the contradictions um, within these Zionist organizations in terms of how they intimidate and how they bully. On the one hand, we hear these arguments about Students for Justice in Palestine and Palestine advocacy in the U.S. excluding Jewish students, uh, promoting anti-Semitism, a continuous uh, commitment on the part of these Zionist organizations to try to conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism mm-hmm. or any kind of critique of Israel for that matter. And so there, on the one hand, you hear those kinds of conversations and that kind of discourse appearing um, in the way that they try to stifle dissent and the way they try to sort of criminalize free speech. But on the other hand, you also hear this way of Zionist students purporting of the normalcy of, of Israel and of Zionism. So it's this contradiction between Israel being this exception that should be afforded all of these waivers, should be afforded all of these different rights, and on the other hand, that it's just as normal as any other state trying to defend itself. Mm-hmm. And that contradiction is actually something that's been really generative on the part of Zionist organizations that are trying to suppress dissent on campus and creating the intimidation tactics because at the end of the day, no matter what Palestinian or Arab or Muslim students or their allies are saying or doing on campus, no matter how nonviolent or how quote-unquote civil, which is a huge word that we're hearing in the Mm -hmm. discourse, no matter how much they're committed to nonviolent exchange of a free intellectual exchange on ideas, it will be criminalized. And I think that that's something um, that has really actually fueled some of these young students, that they're realizing that it's not actually about the way that they're engaging in advocacy. It's about their their very um, meager calls for human rights using nonviolent tactics is being criminalized so heavily. It's pushing them to actually come out and push harder um, and stand against, you know, that injustice. And I think the second thing is that Ayanat Wolf, who's a, a former Israeli official and big, huge Israeli public intellectual, she wrote a book called uh, Losing the War of Words. And she talked about how Uh, One of the gravest threats that's posed against Israel right now is that a lot of their policies in the Israeli state is being equated with words like apartheid and colonialism and settler colonialism and genocide. Mm -hmm. And I think that that means that these students are doing something right when they're engaging in questions of um, what's happening um, in Palestine and to the Palestinians and talking about it within these frameworks um, of what the Palestinians have long endured, it's certainly going to unsettle Zionist feelings because they're no longer able to sort of control the debate, control the the narrative, and sort of erase other contesting, challenging narratives of history. And also, I think on the note of the exception, also how I think what Zoha was saying, how uh, university administrations have been asserting the importance of freedom of speech, and yet at the same time, within sometimes the same statements, basically limiting and restricting speech when it comes to Palestine. How does that work? How do administrations get away with that? A perfect example of it is looking at the University of California's uh, 2016 statement against intolerance. In that statement, there was a huge push by Zionist organizations to to try to equate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. And if you look really closely, in the end, it didn't pass exactly that way. But there was a clause that said the university won't approve of any anti-Semitic forms of anti-Zionism. But if you look really closely... What does that even mean? I I have no clue. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very arbitrary sort of open-ended definition so that the university can use um, the question of protecting free speech and academic freedom when it's in their interest to protect 
protect right-wing groups, Zionist organizations, and so forth, but where they can implement punitive measures on students who are actually exercising their freedom of speech and free intellectual exchange and academic freedom on campuses when it's not in serving their interests. You know, I think if you if we look at that particular statement of intolerance, the only form of real intolerance that's named is anti-Semitism. So again, all other forms of racism and discrimination and xenophobia and, and sexism and homophobia doesn't get named. The exception becomes anti-Semitism. And so it's this question of like, why are we approaching questions of intolerance and discrimination and, and free speech and so forth in such arbitrary ways? And how do these university administrations decide, arbitrarily decide when it is and isn't in their interest to protect students and free speech? I think back to my time at University of California, Riverside, we had a much friendlier campus than many of the other UCs in terms of cooperation with the mm-hmm. administration and their support for Palestine student activity, although there was definitely many, many moments where Palestine speech was you know, suppressed, where we were treated differently and so forth. But I remember once when we were organizing a big Palestinian gathering on campus, this is back in 2015, the vice chancellor of diversity at that moment had said, we asked, why are you asking us to go through all these extraordinary measures of showing you all of our income and all of our program and all these other things? Because we had sent her quite a lot and we had asked other student organizations, if when they want to organize conferences, they do the same. And all of them said no. And her answer was, we only do this in controversial cases. And we said, well, what is a controversial case? And she basically indicated that the controversial cases are when it has to do with Palestine, undocumented students, and black Muslim students. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. so you're you're really, you're focusing on what it is that you classify as controversial and you are treating different groups on campus differently from one another. It's a form of racial discrimination. It's racism. But because there's so much resources backing these different arbitrary ways that they decide who to punish and who to give permission to, to host activities, there's so many resources and there's so much legal bureaucracy that they can protect themselves in that way. We already touched on that a little bit, but I thought it might be useful for our listeners to understand where things are at when it comes to the definition of anti-Semitism. I'm not sure if you want to jump on that, Zuha, because there has been many attempts to, and I think one area of backlash always and controversy is, what is it that constitutes anti-Semitism? And Israeli groups, pro-Israel groups in the U.S. have always tried to, I mean, generally, but also in the U.S., to conflate the criticism of Israel and Zionism as an ideology with anti-Semitism. And there has been attempts to establish that in official definitions on the state level in California, as well as on the national level. Where is that at exactly? Yeah, so there is something that in various forms is called the State Department definition of anti-Semitism, which includes a lot of sections that refer to Israel and protect Israel from criticism. So, for example, it says that you can't single out Israel for criticism, you can't apply a double standard, or you can't question the legitimacy of the Israeli government. And, you know, that's really a a big effort to co-opt this idea of anti-Semitism, which is a real problem that we see, especially with the rise Mm -hmm. of white supremacy under the Trump administration. You know, we saw the shooting in Pittsburgh. It's a very real problem and it's very easy to recognize when it's happening. But, you know, this definition is being used to distract from actual anti-Semitism that is taking place and to try to silence criticism of Israel by equating 
Jewish people with the state of Israel. So it's it's really taking away any agency that individuals who identify as Jewish have in deciding whether or not they support Israel because their identity is is being stolen basically by the Israeli government um, to protect itself. And so I think I mentioned earlier that Ken Marcus, the new head of the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights under Donald Trump, he has actually adopted that definition for use on college campuses despite the fact that the author of that definition has said that that would violate students' free speech rights if that was used to silence criticism of Israel on campus because that definition was designed for the U.S. to analyze anti-Semitism in other countries. And so, you know, in other countries, the U.S. government doesn't need to abide by its uh, responsibilities under the First Amendment to allow free speech. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the U.S. government, state governments, public universities, they all have a responsibility to allow open debate on campuses. And this definition violates that responsibility. It's also been adopted by the state of South Carolina, I believe. And, and there's been efforts to adopt it at the national level. And it was debated in Congress. It didn't pass. But now that Ken Marcus is individually the head of the Office for Civil Rights, he personally secretly went and adopted that definition and announced it in a letter that he sent to the Zionist Organization of America in reopening of closed case. I'm not going to get into that case right now just because mm-hmm. it's, it's complicated, but feel free to visit our website, palestinelegal.org, to find out more about that definition and, and how it was secretly adopted without debate. So that definition is now being used to target activism on campus. So an organization said that they had filed a complaint with that Office for Civil Rights under this new definition of anti-Semitism against the Students for Justice in Palestine conference at UCLA. There was also a complaint that was filed against a group of students at UC Berkeley who had wanted to organize a vigil to talk about the, the shooting in Pittsburgh. So, you know, there was... Um, a group called Jewish Voice for Peace and the Students for Justice in Palestine Club on campus, the two groups wanted to come together and have a vigil where they were mourning the victims of the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. and also the attacks on individuals in Gaza who are, are just demanding basic human dignity. So they wanted to have this vigil and they were targeted by people on their Facebook page told that they were being anti Semitic for having this event that was actually condemning an act of anti-Semitism. So mm-hmm. because they were criticizing anti-Semitism, because they were defending the right of human beings to be alive in the face of white supremacy and Zionism, they were being told that they're anti-Semitic. At other campuses, I don't know if there was necessarily any mention of Palestine, but because the students that were organizing these vigils were committed to justice for all people, including Palestinians, they were told that they're anti-Semitic and that they're politicizing the loss of Jewish life, even if they, you know, the individual organizers might be Jewish people who feel threatened by this attack, mm-hmm. who want to to mourn and, and collectively try to understand the forces that are behind it and fight against them. They're being told that they're not allowed to do that because mm-hmm. they support Palestinian rights as well. Back to that point of white supremacy and Zionism, I want to place this whole conversation in the political context that we live right now under the Trump administration and the inflammatory rhetoric we've been hearing on such a high level of governance. How do you see the link, Lubna? How can you place everything we've been talking about so far in the political context, especially under the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I think that the question of the relationship between white supremacy and Zionism is really coming to a heat now. Um, And it's not just so after Pittsburgh, it has to do with the entire last couple years in terms of the sort of rise of anti-Semitic sentiments and rhetoric and attacks that is connected to um, this 
you know, racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, definitely Islamophobic, anti-Arab and anti-Palestinian sentiments that are sort of spreading across the country and, and the violence that's been coupled with it. I think that people are questioning why it is that we cannot host a vigil to mourn the death of Jewish life in a respectful and dignified way and simultaneously do the same for Palestinian lives that are lost. So I think that question that you raise is really important. And I think that if we spoke with so many of these students who organized vigils or who showed up to vigils on their campus after Pittsburgh, we'll see that the majority of SJP students actually turned out to those events. And for them, being against anti-Semitism is really critical principle to their broader mm -hmm. uh, political work, as is being anti-racist and anti and, and I so think forth. probably our listeners might be familiar, but Student for Justice in Palestine has become this national organization that's multiracial, multireligious. It's really a diverse organization that includes so many Jewish students alongside Palestinian, Arab and other really other communities. Yeah, they're a very diverse group. And I think that they... They're engaging in a lot of the tough questions that young people are, are dealing with today on in a broader level. This is the post-Obama-Trump moment. We both are seeing this extreme right wave that's taken over the country, but also many of the students who are in SJP Arab and non-Arab, people coming from a range of different backgrounds, they understand also the damage that was brought on to, through the sort of multicultural white supremacy era of the Obama administration, right? This this moment in which we're saying that we're post-racial, that, that we're all equal, that we're all the same, we're granting everyone these rights, but simultaneously there's all this death and destruction happening to particular communities and particular communities that are left vulnerable. So these students are students who have been engaging in those questions for a very long time and who have been re really trying to highlight the contradictions. And of course, there's tons of schisms that exist within this student space. They have tons of disagreements and arguments on Zionism, on anti-Semitism, on race, on gender, on all these different things, but they're working together as a community to think about what is the most principled way to stand for justice for whatever community it is and wherever it is, and how to do that without engaging in these persistent contradictions. Definitely the, the Trump moment is magnifying and you know causing a lot of stress for people because there's so much self-defense, protection, safety work that needs to happen. And, and it's kind of closing the margins for being able to have these like really rigorous and important political and intellectual discussions amongst one another. But it also perhaps is the time when we're seeing the bonds between Israel and the U.S., Netanyahu and Trump, maybe magnified. The relationships are the best they can be maybe in a long time. So I don't know if that's also perhaps helping kind of illustrate the links that you were talking about between Zionism and anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, all of these sentiments, as well with what we're seeing in the U.S., the white supremacy and mm -hmm. the actual attacks. I definitely think so. I think Trump's foreign policy administration has been overtly egregious. Many past administrations have been egregious, but it's not always overt. You know, there's still, mm -hmm. there was all these past presidents that were sticking to the language of wanting a two-state solution in the peace process. Trump is, you know, moving the embassy, cutting funds to UNRWA, making really generalized racist comments about Arabs, Muslims, Palestinians. And I think that that's highlighting the relationship between um, Zionism and white supremacy, particularly because, as you said, the relationship between the Israeli state and the United States is so strong right now because Palestinians politically have sacrificed so much just to get a very small fraction of their land and just to mm -hmm. be able to live in just some sort of peace and, and dignity. And still, with all of that sacrifice and surrender, the United States and the Israelis couldn't even grant them that sort of 
crumb of the pie. So I think that that's definitely highlighting things for people about the relationship between Zionism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it's it's particularly highlighting that question for young Jewish members of this growing movement who are really trying to connect with what it means for them to be Jewish spiritually, politically, socially, culturally in a world that's trying to sort of create a really monolithic narrative mm-hmm. of what it means to a be Jewish. A hegemonic identity of what it means to be Jewish. Exactly. And that's, the, that's basically what Israel has been pushing for for a long exactly. time. Exactly. And that negates them their rights to be Jewish. Like that classifies who's an authentic a Jewish person and who's not, who's a self quote unquote self-hating Jew versus who's not. So I think that they're really pushing up against that and they're developing like uh, an exploratory conversation with each other about what it means to have principles that stand for justice and freedom for Mm -hmm. all people, including Palestinians, as part of their community spaces. Zoha Khalili is an attorney with the nonprofit Palestine Legal, whose mission is to protect the civil and constitutional rights of people in the U.S. who speak out for Palestinian freedom. Dr. Lubna Rotami is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, and a member of the Palestinian Youth Movement. You can listen to the longer version of this interview at statushour.com. They spoke with Vomina's Mira Nabulsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Up next, Mira Nabulsi speaks with a group of Yemeni women about their activism and the roles they took on in their communities and families since the beginning of the Yemen war in 2015. Yemen is currently one of the bloodiest in the world. And until the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of the Saudi regime, this war was largely ignored. Even when media covers Yemen, we mostly see images of destroyed buildings, of rubble, chaos, and images of malnourished children. The names, voices, and stories of Yemenis are hardly at the center of this conflict's coverage. And as with other wars, women are grouped with children and the elderly. They are portrayed as simply victims at the receiving end of events around them. So how do women see this war and how did it change their lives? In my quest to learn more, I spoke to five Yemeni women, all involved in women and feminist activism in various capacities. I asked them whether women are also actors in this war. And on a community level, it's easier for us to work. But and, and on higher levels, which where we need to be, we need the government that is supporting us. People, they, they live with not dignity, with less than the minimum standards of living. War have brought the best of many, many Yemeni women. But the state doesn't work, doesn't do its job. No water, no electricity, no salaries. No good education, no good services of health. But let me backtrack and give you a little background about the ongoing war in Yemen. 
2011 was the year when it all started. Like their Arab neighbors, Yemenis took to the streets demanding dignity, social justice, and an end to Ali Abdullah Saleh's 33 years rule. The protests were able to remove Saleh and initiated a two years transition phase and a national dialogue conference sponsored by the United Nations. But soon after, the hopes for change were co-opted by Yemen's political establishment. An election with a sole candidate in 2012 brought to power Abdrabbo Mansour Hadi, Saleh's former vice president. The political process that brought the new president also birthed a proposal to divide Yemen into six regions with a certain level of autonomy, preempting renewed calls for secession by South Yemenis dismayed by government's political and economic disenfranchisement. The Federalist plan also aimed at averting claims to power by the Ansarullah movement known as the Houthis. The Houthi movement is a rebel group of the Zaydi sect, hailing from the Sada region north of the capital, Sana'a. Let's just say the national dialogue did not go as planned. The new government failed to implement the outcomes of the dialogue and to hold Saleh accountable. Saleh later allied with the Houthis, who refused the Federalist plan to divide Yemen. They seized control over parts of the country, slowly making their way to the capital, Sana'a. They dissolved the parliament, ousted President Hadi, and took over the capital in 2014. But see, the tensions between the central government and the Houthis is not new. Neither is the Gulf state's involvement in Yemen, especially that of Saudi Arabia. This time, Saudi Arabia launched a wide-scale military offensive in March of 2015. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm Adil al the ambassador of Saudi Arabia to the United States. Um, I wanted to uh, meet with you to inform you that uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia launched military operations in Yemen. Uh, the objective is uh, limited to defending and protecting the legitimate government of Yemen and preventing its collapse uh, to, to the Houthis. But the offensive ended up being not so limited. What may have appeared as an internal conflict slowly turned into a regional war, with Arab and Muslim countries joining the coalition led by Saudi Arabia and an unofficial support by Iran to the Houthis. The Houthis currently control the capital Sana'a and much of the north of the country. The Saudi Emirati coalition controls much of the south, and a tight blockade by the coalition has led to conditions of famine and to the spread of diseases like cholera and diphtheria. The conflict in Yemen has many layers, including a southern secessionist movement, a 16-year-old U.S. drone war against al-Qaeda, which remains active in the country, and according to media reports, al-Qaeda militants are fighting alongside coalition forces against the Houthis in parts of the country. And last but not least, the United Arab Emirates, a leading force in the coalition, running what appears to be its own independent agenda in Yemen, especially in the south. Most recent accounts estimate that 60,000 lives may have been taken by the war. This number only includes deaths directly caused by violence. Organizations like Save the Children estimate additional tens of thousands may have died from other conflict-related causes. Currently, 18 million people are food insecure and 22 million are in need of assistance. 
For context, Yemen's population is estimated at 28 million people. So millions are literally on the brink of starvation. So how are these women coping with this war? It's now it's not anymore Yemeni war. This is Women and Gender Studies professor Antalaq Al Mutawakkil. She teaches at Sana'a University. She describes the war to me as absurd. Like other women I spoke to, she believes the war is out of Yemeni's control now. It is not internal conflict right now anymore. We cannot say it is among internal uh, parties who really like stop it. I mean, but now it is a regional, it is international war that using. Where, I mean, Yemen has the land for this uh, battle for the uh, people from both uh, conflict uh, Yemenis, I mean, conflict parties, they're, they're really tired and they're ready to stop it. So what do you think is the they're obstacle? Not, What's the problem? Allowed. They're what? not allowed. It, it's, no, it's not anymore Yemeni war. Antilak lost her father at the beginning of this conflict. He was a politician. Muhammad Abdul Malik Al Mutawakkil was his name. She says he was working to bring Yemen's opposing parties together. Her nephew, who was studying in Malaysia, died after medical procedure, and his family was unable to be with him during his sickness due to the closure of Sana'a's airport. The family tried everything to bring his body back into Yemen and finally was able to smuggle him in, in a commercial truck that was carrying supplies. But that's not the only tragedy her family had to endure. I uh, I have now a brother-in-law who's detained in Marib. He he was he is a professor at Sanaya University in economy, and he was going to um, he coming he's coming back from Morocco, an economy conference through Marib because uh, Sanaa's uh, airport is closed. So he was first disappeared until now. We know nothing about him. It is mainly actually because of his last name. It's just uh, from the same race as Abdel Malik al Houthi. That, that's the main. He's not a politician, he's an economist. Antilak is referring to the local authorities in the city of Ma'rib, considered loyal to the government of President Hadi and supported by Saudi Arabia. The exact number of those abducted by parties of the conflict remains unknown. But in the recent peace talks in Sweden, the names of 15,000 prisoners were listed as part of a swap deal. Amal Abdurrahman has been actively searching for her cousin for the past two years. She did not tell me his name, but she believes he was abducted by the Houthis. My cousin was taken from his home. Militants from the Houthi and former President Saleh forces came in while he was having lunch with his family. They asked him to come with them. He asked if he could finish his lunch, but they did not allow it. We haven't heard from him since. She breaks into tears as she tells me about her aunt, the cousin's mother. She suffered a stroke and memory loss after his disappearance. Amal is from the capital, Sana'a, and she tells me since the war, they have faced economic hardships, bombing by the Saudi-led coalition, and intimidation and censorship by the Houthis currently ruling the capital. This is a problem facing many journalists and human rights defenders.
Ahmed recounts being harassed by the Houthis for speaking to a media outlet about the case of a family friend who was also kidnapped. The man was on a hunger strike to protest torture in prison. <laughs> Just because I spoke to the media and expressed my solidarity with this man, I was threatened. Militants came to my house and threatened to arrest me under the pretext that I was causing civil unrest. They threatened they would take my 10-year-old son if I do not stop or pay ransom. Amal is a mother of five. Her family worries about her but supports the work she does. Before the war, she was a housewife. Now, she's one of the leaders of the Association of Mothers of the Abductees, a woman-led organization that Amal and others started after realizing their individual efforts weren't working and that they needed to organize themselves to advocate for their family members abducted by parties of the conflict. Those abductees are often held without charges or any legal processes. That's why Emil's organization calls them abductees. She tells me that when she began investigating the disappearance of her cousin, she hardly knew where to go. She didn't know where the Red Cross or the United Nations offices were. She started meeting other women who have disappeared family members outside of detention centers. I used to run into other women outside of prison a few times a week. Most of us were housewives and had little experience in public life and in this type of advocacy. We used to share with each other information, like who to talk to that may have leverage over the current administration in Sana'a where to go, where people are detained, and for how long, to learn about our disappeared family members. We realized that we shared a lot of the same pain and became close to each other. We just selflessly supported each other, and we became a family. Today, Amal took it upon herself to learn human rights laws and international conventions for her work. Her organization is the main local grassroots group to advocate for Yemeni war prisoners. In their latest report issued, they document the methods of torture of over 900 detainees, including 71 cases of people who died under torture. Women stepping up and taking on more responsibilities was a theme I heard with every one of the women I spoke with. Nisma Wansour is a student from Aden, south of Yemen. She's involved with the Women Peace Track Initiative, an organization that organizes local actions to educate and push for women's rights. They also advocate for their participation in a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Nisma was herself an IDP, or an internally displaced person, Earlier in the conflict, she tells me that Yemeni women are playing a central role in the humanitarian relief on the ground. Every woman that feels that she can help, they go out and help, they, they form a small initiative. For example, uh, now it's Eid in, in, now it's Eid in the Muslim world and m- many, like it started like they're, they, were, they are collecting donations, they are buying new clothes for the IDB kids. Um, this is this is one of the very many things women are doing now. Um, 
like I, I, I cannot like explain how proud I am of them, of their work, and how proud I am of seeing that women are not just sitting at home and saying that let the men do the job. No, we're doing, we're doing it. We're not just the victims. We're all, we're also there helping and and trying to make like make the situation livable as possible. With the inflation and absence of many men, women who may have never worked outside of their homes before had to go out and work to provide for their families. Like you would see so many businesses now have opened. They are women, uh, women businesses, which was very rare. Uh, many women have enrolled in the workforces. Uh, sadly, many of them are like, very underqualified because they were depending on men on providing but you could see it that many are now uh, looking for for jobs like improving their skills enrolling in in like studying amal from the abductees mothers association also talked to me about women being forced to work outside of their homes not an easy task with the high unemployment rate and the disruptions in salaries for the public sector employees she says one of her friends found herself forced to collect plastic bottles and selling them making a hundred rials per bag that's about 50 U.S. cents. Today, some parts of Yemen, like the South, are considered more peaceful than others. But the entire country is suffering the consequences of this relentless war. Filling the humanitarian and social void remains easier for women than playing a political role in this bloody conflict. There are many women who are saying that it's not the time now to be politically involved because if I I was involved now I would like I would have to be with one of the conflict parties and some many see that both parts of the conflict are guilty so they they don't want their names to be connected to either one of the conflict parts not either either the government nor the Houthis. So everyone is like stepping back because it's too, it's too dangerous, it's too not, not stable, not safe. In the aftermath of the 2011 revolution, women constituted one-third of the participants in the National Dialogue Conference that was sponsored by the United Nations. That included independent women and those affiliated with political parties. Women were able to secure a 30% quota on all governmental levels in the proposed draft of the new constitution, which they participated in writing. They contributed with their capacities, with their experience, with their aspirations. This is Wamid Shakir, a woman and gender expert based in the capital, Sana'a. But not an ultimate achievement as a start to continue a uh, woman's participation in building the new state, the new Yemen. Unfortunately, the, the National Dialogue Conference, which women participate effectively, and let's say meaningfully in that conference, to formulate the outcomes of the National Dialogue Confer Conference regarding many national issues, the state structure, the independent identities of the state, 
the human rights. Wamid says when it comes to women's rights, that draft constitution was the most progressive they've seen. But as the national dialogue failed and the war broke out, the quota was not followed through. Organizations like the Yemeni Women Pact for Peace and Security, which Wamid is a member of, is one of the local organizations working to safeguard the 30% quota. And although women were present in some of the negotiation rounds between the parties of the conflict, their participation was sometimes a token representation. I asked Wamid about that. She said the impact of women's participation goes beyond. It has an impact on the, the society, the community, the individuals. Uh, and making their uh, attitude towards, me, uh, towards women positive. And uh, to believe uh, that women's participation is a right. Wamid also points to the role of women members of political parties. She says they have been also at times instrumental in communicating with activists on the ground and facilitating negotiations for the release and swap of political prisoners. I asked her if she thinks women's active social and political involvement can be viewed as a challenge to societal taboos. She told me women stepping up their role should be viewed as a natural response and not some sort of a breakthrough in women's status. Women are not generally participating in combat, but many reports document indirect involvement of Yemeni women in the conflict, from recruiting to caring for the wounded and feeding fighters. Beyond that, grassroots women groups have worked tirelessly to advocate for a peaceful resolution of the conflict. For months, they have articulated exactly the steps they viewed necessary for that to be achieved. Such proposals were shared with the United Nations envoys on multiple occasions. And as we've heard from the women I interviewed, they are also involved in the humanitarian efforts. They are protesting, negotiating the release of prisoners, and documenting human rights violations. All of that in addition to their role in maintaining the social cohesion of the Yemeni society. I asked women I spoke to what they wanted listeners to know. Here is Arwal Miflehi, an engineer and an organizer with the Women's Coordination Committees at Adan's refinery company. In light of the ongoing conflict and the government abandoning its responsibilities, international organizations can do more. We need a genuine and effective role. Help is desperately needed not just in the humanitarian sector, but in long-term sustainable development, in education, human rights, and many other sectors, to help alleviate the society. The response of international aid groups to the tragedy in Yemen remains inadequate. It is further complicated by a blockade imposed by the Saudi-led coalition and disruptions by Houthi forces. But United Nations agencies and other humanitarian organizations have maintained a special attention to women's peace-building efforts. Here's what Arwa had to say about that. We cannot expect women to carry all the burden. At the end of the day, women are part of society and cannot change it alone. What goes on affects women as it affects men, and women's empowerment 
cannot happen in isolation from the rest of society. What is needed is a comprehensive process. Women constitute 76% of the 3 million internally displaced people in the country. International organizations document a 63% increase in violence against women since the beginning of the conflict and an increase in child marriages due to families' desperate economic conditions. Also, civil society organizations in Yemen point to the increase in households led by female IDPs below the age of 18. The recently signed peace agreement in Sweden is a spark of hope, but it is still hard to know how things will change on the ground. It's hard to predict whether women's hopes will see the light. But what's for sure is that women are striving for a better life on all levels. So far, they've continued to bear the brunt of this war. From Berkeley, California, I am Mira Nabulsi. This story was produced in collaboration with the Muslim Women and the Media Training Institute at the University of California, Davis. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email V-O-M-E-K-P-F-A at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Mm